verses 1 through 12 with two kings, the tender and the troubled, part 4. In Matthew chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, it says that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Wise men had come from the east, and seeking the newborn king of the Jews, they had set Jerusalem on its head. They were stargazers and sorcerers. Wise, not by virtue of title or even because of the doctrine that they held, but instead they were wise according to the deeds that flowed forth from their character. For when God revealed himself, they acted accordingly. They did hard things that a holy God commanded. When God reveals himself, mortal men are troubled. They are stirred through. They are storm-tossed. When God revealed himself to the wise men, they were troubled enough to travel the dangerous journey across Asia. They were troubled enough to defy a mad king. Herod was troubled to a murderous rampage against even the most innocent, and even Mary was troubled at Gabriel's greeting, even when the greeting was that she was favored by God. And the Lord was with her. Being troubled by God leads to so many questions, possibilities, hopes, doubts, dreams, and fears. What do you do with this Jesus? What if we believe that he is the Messiah and it turns out that he's not? Or worse yet, what if we do not believe that he is the Messiah? And it turns out that he is. In this question, salvation and damnation hang in the balance. How will men respond? And the answer is, it all depends upon the favor of the Lord God himself. And the collective response of individuals will define the response of the culture at large. As a matter of fact, we're seeing that collective response of individuals defining the response of the culture at large in America here today. But in this case, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And the troubling that we see amongst the masses comes to a head amongst their political and spiritual leaders with a conspiracy of omission. When in Matthew chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4, it says that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Now last week we started by asking the question, why did the chief priests and the scribes answer the question of where the Christ was to be born, answer the question of the location of his birth, while admitting so much of Micah's prophecy about him? Not only did they admit, omit most of what Micah had to say about his coming, but they omitted the most important part. They admitted all of the parts about his deity. For the Christ to be born is not simply the king of the Jews, but instead is the eternal shepherd of his people, Israel. And so if you look at the prophecy out of Micah that we looked at, or we begin to look at last week, we're going to continue in this week, then you know that there is much that is said there about God's plan for redemption of mankind and the glory of his name and the coming of Jesus Christ. There is much said about his purpose. There is much said about his providence. And yet, the scribes and the Pharisees are very particular and very technically correct in the way that they answer the king's query. They speak to him only of the location to which the Christ is to be born. And not of all the rest. The reason for this is because Christ is a threat to the status quo. He is a threat to their circumstance. And what you will find among the sons and daughters of men is that the concept of the Messiah will be well accepted as long as it is painted in such a way and presented to them in a manner that will protect the things that they want protected and eliminate the things that they want eliminated. But if the reality of the Christ is going to attack the things that they want protected and promote the things that they want eliminated, then you will find men to be less than accepting of the word of the Messiah when it comes. You see, Christ threatens their circumstance. It threatens their standing. It threatens their authority. He threatens their comfort. Both politically in Herod and religiously in the scribes and the Pharisees. And I would have you know that it is not just the Jews that have a hard time with Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you consider the manifestation of God, the question is not, are you troubled? The question is not whether or not the coming of the Messiah is troublesome to men, for in fact, Scripture teaches that He is troublesome to us all. After all, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus Himself would say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, if you understand that message for what it actually says, it is a troublesome thing to you. It's troublesome for everyone who possesses a mortal life. If this is what Christianity looks like, it's a hard sell among fallen men. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. The question is not, are you troubled, or whether or not the coming of the Messiah is in fact troublesome, because 
it is and you should be. The question is, is are you troubled by God or like these scribes and Pharisees and Herod, are you troubled by the circumstances that he ordains? You see, the problem that Herod had with Jesus was not that a Messiah had been born. The trouble that Herod had with Jesus was the Messiah was also going to be king, and he was king. And you can't have two kings. The trouble that the scribes and the Pharisees had with Jesus was not that the Messiah had been born and was going to come and take away the sins of the earth. The problem they had with him was that he was also the great high priest. And they were priests. And if he's priest, what are we going to do? Go to work for the county? Are you troubled by God? Or are you troubled by the things that he commands, the circumstance that he ordains for you to walk in? For you see, the gospel of the Messiah, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. It is peace in the midst of ordained trial unto the future perfect and eternal peace that is apart from trial. And so there is a future perfect and eternal peace that is apart from trial, but we're not there yet. And right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is peace in the midst of trial. Not apart from it. And if you don't believe it, all you have to do is read the entirety of the prophecy that is written about Christ in Micah that the high screen, the high screens, that the scribes and the Pharisees passed over. Look in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. In Micah chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to cover this quick because we covered most of the first part of this last week. Now muster your troops. O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when he, when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Micah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, in just five short verses. There's a really bad verse break there. It really ought to only be four verses. But in just five short verses, covers the all of redemptive history. At least the all beginning at the original audience to which Micah writes. That which is foretold from of old, 
the present that is at hand, the relatively near future that's just about seven centuries down the road for the original audience, the far future that is still counting, but now at least, at least 27 centuries away, and then all of eternity in every single one of these, whether that which was spoken from of old or that which was the present at hand or that which was going to happen in 700 years or that that still hasn't happened in 2,700 years is all completely fixated on the promise of Jesus Christ. And so for those that were the original audience, the present at hand occurs in chapter 5, verse 1. And so if you were in Israel... Kicking it around about 2,700 years ago, you would have heard something similar to this. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, for siege is laid against us, and with the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What is spoken here is the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to carry off eventually all of Israel into captivity. When the judge of Israel, note the judge of Israel and not the king, for the one who is actually carried off is the vassal king, one who had been put in power by Nebuchadnezzar himself and was the actual king's uncle, is struck down. His children are killed in front of him and then he is blinded and all of Israel is carried off into captivity to Babylon. You go, man, that's, that's a bummer of a Mother's Day sermon. Yeah, it doesn't end there. For in the midst of all of the destruction of Jerusalem and the shattering of so many people's vision of what was supposed to be and, and truly the shattering of so many of those individuals' faith, it was a fragile faith that wasn't of God but was of man. When the things of men crumbled around them, their faith crumbled along with it. But in the midst of this, there was a hope that was coming in the near future just seven centuries away. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, in the midst of all of this, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And this one who's coming forth is from the ancient of days, is not simply coming as any ruler or even as a king, as the wise men would see. But instead, according to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, this is the one that the scribes and the chief priests said is to be shepherd of his people Israel. Poinemo. A tender. As we said last week, not, not, not one who is tender like, oh, sweetheart, it's okay. But the word comes from point men, which means pasture or field. This is the one who tends the pasture, who tends the field and all that is in it. He is the one that tends the flock, tends the herd. He is the shepherd that is coming. And he's coming forth out of Bethlehem. So you have 
the present destruction of Jerusalem for the original audience. You have a future hope that is about seven centuries down the road, and yet, even with that future hope that is coming, the far future for Israel is one of extended trial. And what you would like to think is, okay, things are hard right now. Things are hard right now. We're in the middle of this deportation to Babylon. The ruler of Israel has been struck on the cheek. His children are dead. He's had his eyes put out. We're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, but by golly, there is future hope. And when that hope comes, it is going to be the fullness of full and as good as hopefulness can be. It'll be the most hopeful hopefulness that anybody's ever hoped for in Hopetown. It'd be great. That's the way I would write it. But it's not what the Lord says. The Lord says that even though there is future hope for Israel, the extended long-term forecast is one of trial. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time. He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So a couple of things you can walk away, just real simple exegesis here. They are going to be given up for a time, and it is a set time. And like all set times, it's going to have a beginning, and it's going to have an end. Its beginning is after the events of the incarnation of Christ in verse 2. That's when it starts. And its end comes when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so there's a couple of things you can walk away with from here. First of all is that there is a future hope coming, but when the day of that hope is over, and it appears to be relatively short-lived, then there is this extended trial. And that trial is not going to come to an end until... She who is in labor, whoever that is, gives birth. And at that point, there's going to be this great returning. And I would caution you not to let your circumstantial bias affect your theology, for it is not Mary who is giving birth here. She already did that back in verse 2 when the Christ came forth out of Bethlehem. Instead, as we saw last week, it is Israel who is giving birth. It is the work of the Messiah that Mary gave birth to that is now bringing forth something in birth out of Israel. Isaiah says it this way in chapter 66. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. We're not talking about a person here talking about a city and a people by whom the city is called. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. And so we see that in the, for the original audience, things were about to get real bad. 
Babylon was coming, they were going into captivity, but there was a future hope, and the hope was none less than the Messiah himself coming forth out of Babylon, one who would rule, one who would shepherd his people, but the way he was going to shepherd them did not look like the way that men would write the script. Because the way he was going to shepherd them was this, that after this brief glimpse of hope out of Bethlehem, there was this extended period of trial. And at the end of it, when everybody thought that all was lost and they were actually going to give birth to nothing, it takes a long time for men to lose hope. It takes a longer time for an entire culture to lose hope. When they had lost hope and thought they were going to give birth to nothing in a moment, in a day. She hollered out in labor and then brought forth. And this birth, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 3, produces a returning of the brothers of Israel back to Jerusalem. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, the only way that you can have a whole bunch of brothers out there that are returning is if you first had a whole bunch of brothers out there that were scattered in order that they might return. What Micah is speaking here is not the return of Babylon. Not the return from Babylon. If that was the case, then he should have been talking about that before verse 2. Because it happened before the coming of the Christ born in Bethlehem. He's talking about a return that comes after Christ, not before The only one that does is the same one that is spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, where he says, speaking of the end of days, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. That brings us up to the end of Micah verse 2. The Messiah is cut off. And therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. He is cut off, Gabriel says to Daniel, but not for himself. And the prince... And the the people of the prince who is to come, that being the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So here you have the Romans coming in and destroying the city and the sanctuary. This happens after the Messiah is cut off. This happens after the crucifixion of Christ. And we know from history that it happened in 70 AD. The people that did this are the people of the prince who is to come. And it was the Romans who did it. And then he says this, and this is really the important part for what we're looking at today. The end of it shall come with a flood, 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so here you have in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, this kind of, I mean, you talk about abbreviated. This is the history of redemption in encapsulated form. And so there is one who is to come forth who is from of old. And what is coming forth was going to look like was this. The ruler of Israel is going to be struck on the cheek. You're going to be carried off into captivity in Babylon. But there is a future hope that's just about 700 years down the road. You're coming back to the, to the, to the land of Israel. And the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Praise God. He's going to be the one who rules over Israel. He will shepherd his flock. He will tend his flock. But he may not tend it in the way that you thought he was going to tend it. As a matter of fact, his tending is going to be way different than Herod would want. It's going to be way different than the scribes would want. It would be way different than the chief priests are going to want. As a matter of fact, it's so different. It's got all of Jerusalem storm-tossed and troubled. Why? Because from the time of his cutting off, and the coming of the people of the prince who is to come, who destroyed the sanctuary from that time forth until Israel gives birth to something new. From that time forth, desolations are decreed. He shall give them up until the time, Micah says. They're coming back, but not for a long time. And in the meantime, it's going to be desolation and trial and hardship. The reason that the scribes, the chief priests, when asked by Herod, where is the Christ to be born? They quoted a little bitty snippet of the prophecy out of Micah and said he's going to be born right here in Bethlehem is because they didn't want to have to deal with the reality of everything the prophecy said. You want to know why when people today ask so many Christians about Jesus, they just deal with a little snippet of what the Bible says about Jesus? It's for the exact same reason. They don't want to have to deal with the totality of the reality of what Scripture says Jesus is. Because mistakenly, it's because they don't understand the, the way men are actually saved. But mistakenly, they think in their heart, they think subconsciously, even if, not, even if they wouldn't admit this with their conscious mind, they think if people ask me about Christ and I tell them that the way that you come to Christ is by dying, then they're a lot less likely to come that if instead I tell them that the way you come by to Christ is, is, is you know, by confessing you're a sinner, well, man, who, who in the world thinks they're not? Legitimately. Who in the world thinks they're perfect? Everybody's got a sin they can find to confess. You need to confess and believe, and everything will be hunky-dory. And in our human psyche, in our, in our subconscious, in the depth of our heart, we believe that Christ would be more convincing for some to, someone to come to if we didn't tell them that what they had to do was pick up their cross and die. 
And so we do the same thing that we see the scribes and the chief priests doing. We tell them part of the story. And then when things get real, we wonder why they crumble. <laughs> my, my, my dad my dad had a, a friend once upon a time who, who in the army uh, who got you know this simple guy kind of clueless a little bit and probably hadn't left Mississippi very many times in his life and he got stationed in Utah and so you know got to go to church where do you go to church church right down the street let's go to church go to church Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. He said, man, we've been four or five times. Didn't have a clue who they were. This is back in the 70s, right? Didn't have a clue who they were. And, and if, you, if you were a kid growing up around here even in the 80s, like the Mormon church coming to town was a big deal. Nobody knew who they were. And, and so, man, he... Go to church. They were nice people, super friendly, really welcoming. Have a real positive message every week. And uh, he said, so some folks from the church wanted to come over to the house and visit us. And we said, yeah, come on over. We'd like to talk to you about, you know, maybe going to church here. He said, next thing I know, they're going through my cupboards, throwing away all my coffee and my Cokes. He said, wait a minute. I don't think this is for me. Subconsciously, we've got this idea that there's parts of Christ that are, well, it's not even, that part's not even subconscious. There are parts of Christ that are way more palatable to the human experience than other parts are. And we want to dumb it down. They wanted his peace to mimic their idea of what peace is to be. But the fact of the matter is, is he is no puppet. Isaiah chapter 49 records what Israel giving birth will actually look like. So, put yourself in these people's position. The ruler of Israel has been struck on the cheek. They've seen violence like me and you can't even imagine. They've been drug off for 70 years to captivity in Babylon. They've been brought back to what basically is a, is a shelled out war zone to try to scrape back together a living out of the stones and, and the dirt, and um, we're looking forward to a future hope in Christ, and but but that hope is is it's not in the fullness thereof, because the way that He is going to shepherd them is the way is not the way they want to be shepherded. They are going to be turned over for a time, and 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 what is decreed for them during that time is desolation. But something's coming. This birthing is coming. And when this birthing comes, it is going to do some miraculous things, including bring all of those that have been scattered abroad by the desolations of the war that are decreed. It is going to bring them back to Israel. And Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 8, tells us what that birthing in Israel looks like. And the first thing that we can say is this, is it appears out of nowhere. It comes when they believe that all hope is lost. In Isaiah 49, verse 8, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. 
I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. So when the Lord shows up in this time of favor to answer them in a day that he calls the day of salvation, the heritage that he is apportioning to them are currently desolate. Why? Because from the time the Messiah is cut off, the people of the prince who is to come will come and destroy the temple until the end of the war, desolations are decreed. They are given over until she who is in labor gives birth. And so here they are, and here is the day coming, and she's about to give birth, and salvation is about to come, but the heritage that she has been promised that he's about to cut up and give to them is currently in a state of utter desolation. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners... These are not free people he's speaking to. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. And they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these shall come from the north and from the west, and these from all the lands of Sinai. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Okay, we finally arrived at the moment when the birth is coming. There has been this extended period of time, extended period of desolation that has been decreed, and it has had its effect, man. Their heritages are desolate. They are prisoners. They're about to starve to death. They are afflicted, but the Lord is coming to comfort them and have compassion on his conflicted. Man, when the birth of Israel comes forth... It comes out of nowhere. It's because it is the birthing of Israel that is coming is their salvation. And just like yours and mine, it came out of nowhere. You didn't claw your way back from death to life. You didn't take the spoon and scrape yourself out of the grave. This isn't Shawshank. You were dead and Christ made you alive. And the exact same thing is about to happen with them. It appears out of nowhere and they sing for joy. For in the midst of what seemed hopeless, they have found salvation. Why? Because of the promise and the faithfulness of their God. Not because what they've done, but because of what He is doing. He continues in verse 14 through 18. He says it this way. But Zion said... This is what she had said when she was still a prisoner, when her heritages were still a desolation, in the middle of the time when she was being turned over until the birthing came. Zion had said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You ever feel that way? My Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. I want to be honest with you guys. I'm not saying that you 
that there's never a time that this can happen. He has never forsaken me and he has never forgotten me. But what is being spoken about here is their salvation. And in the moments and days leading up to my salvation, I felt like he had forsaken me. It didn't seem like it mattered what I said, he wouldn't listen. Or at least it seemed to me like he wasn't listening. And so here they are, an unsaved people. And they say, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And he responds like this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament and you shall bind them on as a bride does. The Lord says, you may think I've forgotten my promise to you, but I haven't. The woman who nurses the child, yes, even here on Mother's Day, he says, Mama will forget you before I will. These people that trouble you, these that press you down, these that crush you, they will be worn on you like an ornament, the very spoils of my victory. You'll put them on like a bride, which is the thing that in God will always precede the giving of birth. And in verse 19... Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. You understand what that means? Let me just put it together for you real quick. What that means is before you were a prisoner and you had a promised inheritance, but it lay desolate and you couldn't even get that. And now I've brought you to a place where you are no longer a prisoner, but you're even eating on the byways as you travel to your inheritance. And when you get there, you will be such a great people that the inheritance that you had will be too narrow. It will be too small for you. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? A minute ago there wasn't any of us and we were scattered all over the face of the world and now there's so many that the land is too narrow for us. We overflow it. Where does this come from? You will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was barren and bereaved, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders, and kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. And then you will know that I am the Lord Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. That's what the birth looks like. All right, back to Micah. Back to all the stuff that they didn't want to have to deal with because the Messiah is messy. Let's just stick with born in Bethlehem. Israel's going to go into exile, she's going to come back from exile. In time for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, a future hope, but not the perfection thereof. And from the time of his cutting off, the people of the prince that is to come will come and destroy the temple and the sanctuary. And from that time, they are given over. They are given over to desolations that are decreed until the very end of the war. Until she who is in labor, that is Israel herself, gives birth. And when she does, it's coming out of nowhere. She's going to be a slave. She's going to be a prisoner. Her inheritance is going to lie in desolation. And when that birth comes, all of a sudden, they're all going to look around and go, where did all of this Israel come from? The place that we were too narrow for and rattled around like a BB in a matchbox is now too narrow for us. Look at all the sons and daughters that have been born to me. Where did they come from? And the Lord said, I put it in the heart of the nations and they have brought your brothers and sisters that have been scattered across the face of this earth. Brothers and sisters that didn't even know they were the blood sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have now been born again and they have been brought to you. And in that day, we move in the gospel, a gospel that is peace in the midst of current trial looking forward to an eternal future of perfect peace apart from trial at that moment of giving birth the transition happens and we move from peace in the midst of trial to peace apart from trial we move to eternal glory in Micah chapter 5 verse 4 and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. He doesn't have peace in his pocket that he's slinging on the corner. He doesn't, he doesn't have peace in a, in a cookie jar that he's handing out to the kids. He is their peace. There's no peace that is apart from Jesus Christ. The reason we know that is because peace comes from salvation. And if you'll remember what Gabriel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. Not Yahweh brings salvation, not Yahweh offers salvation. He 
is salvation. And so here's the thing. And this is, this is where I really wanted to get to last week and we just didn't have time. Here's the thing. Why does it have to be so hard? Why couldn't the salvation of Jesus Christ be an easier experience for us? This is a fair question to ask because men in the midst of these ordained desolations have been asking this throughout Scripture. I mean, this is, you know, this is why the prophet says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Why is it this way? Why is it so hard? Why can't it be easier than it is? And I would tell you that by definition, men are born fallen and into a fallen world and before the consummation, before the giving birth that is to come that is going to bring about this eternal peace. And that would be true, but this is specifically true for us. And I mean specifically true for those men who have been born of the kingdom after the coming of the people of the prince to come after the burning of the temple in 70 AD, all the way up until she who is in labor gives birth. We are a people of Micah chapter 5, verse 3a. This is our time frame. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That's us. We're the until generation. You talk about Generation X and Gen Zers and Millennials and all that kind of stuff. You want to know what? From 70 AD all the way up through right now, we are the until generation. If you want to look at the kingdom of God, that's who we are. We're not the generation of verse 1 who was waiting for the coming of Babylon. We're not the generation of verse 2 that saw firsthand the glimmer of hope in the Messiah coming forth from Bethlehem. We're the until generation. In the kingdom of God, that's who we are. We're the ones born in the big gap called the until. And so far it's been going on for almost 2,000 years. And what is our time frame going to look like? Desolations are decreed. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. You say, well, preacher, what war are you talking about? Well, you could look at a lot of different scripture, but I think the one that grabs the entirety of the war in the same manner that Micah chapter 5 grabs the entirety of ordained salvation is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Because it, or sorry, verse 12. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Because Revelation chapter 12 starts in, um, in ancient days from of old and comes forward um, all the way um, to where we find ourselves today. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars and this is national Israel directly out of the visions that were received by Joseph 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. You want to know till the end of what war? To the end of that war. And when you read the Revelation here in chapter 12, the next verse in in verse 7 says, Now war arose in heaven with Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. At that point, the war still got three and a half years until it's over. There's still three and a half years before you see Israel bring forth the birth that is spoken of in Micah chapter 5 verse 3. And so... You say, man, one is, that's some heavy-duty Old Testament prophecy You know, for Matthew chapter 2. Can't we just do wise men? No, this is what wise men do. It's funny to me that it's funny to me that when you, when you read Matthew chapter 2 today, you know, it's the Christmas story. Right? And so here we get to this part about he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We all know what a nativity scene looks like, and, and, and we just instinctively know. Even though, you know, you've got the, you know, it always looks like a barn, right? Not just some hole in a rock like it actually was, but it always looks like a barn, you know, and it's got, you know, your, your shepherds and your sheep and your wise men, you're probably a camel or two, and, you know, we'll... we'll carved image of Jesus in the manger, whatever. Um, and we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And we go, oh, isn't that neat? Even the Old Testament was telling about the coming of Christ. And then we just move on. We just move on and leave it there. See, why do you go into all this stuff? Well, because that's where Scripture points us, but you want to know, and here's the breakdown, okay? The the, the real reason I want to go there, here's the rub. The rub is this. is The rub is because we do that with Scripture, and then we do the same thing I'm not necessarily talking about you or, or maybe even me, I hope, or, or Matt, but I'm just talking about Christianity in the United States today. Which, look, guys, it doesn't matter if we hold our Christianity in this manner or not. The fact of the matter is that it is because it is held that way at large means when we go out and want to evangelize somebody and want to disciple somebody, we have to understand what's going on because we're going to have to deal with that baggage whether you like it or not. These are the people that you're speaking to about Christ. This is it. One of the things that, that the missions committee has been struggling with is, is and, and missionaries have done it forever, is some of the hardest places to evangelize are the places that have got just enough Jesus to inoculate you from the gospel. And that's exactly what you have in Arkansas. Everybody's been to church. Everybody's probably been to church camp. 
This is nothing new to them, but they've only heard part of it. And so when they think they get it because they got part of it, and then they try to participate in the things of the kingdom and in the things of the Spirit, all of a sudden, the next thing we're going to find down the page is a whole bunch of dead kids. And they go, well, where did that come from? That wasn't part of the program. That wasn't how it was supposed to go. Well, no, if you go back and read the whole prophecy instead of just taking out the parts that the scribes were comfortable with at the moment, you will find out that's exactly how it was ordained to go. And the reason that we're having people that get all fired up for Christ and, they, and everybody thinks they're on board and six months later you can't find them anywhere is because something got bloody real hard, real fast, and no one told them it was coming. You mean I'm supposed to have to do hard things? Yes. You mean what, what is this desolations ordained to the end? I have to deal with that? Yes. Let me tell you what the gospel looks like in bringing men to life. Men are born again from death to life. And that life is a living hope. And it happens smack dab in the middle of a war zone. Doesn't happen in a doesn't happen in an incubator, doesn't happen in a greenhouse, doesn't happen in a nursery. You don't get the birthing pen like the people that have the high dollar registered cattle have. Man, ours just have them right out there in the ditch. Looks like this, 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you're already in the Revelation, just go left a couple of pages, you'll find it. 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what the living hope looks like that is being manifest in the until generation. Chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sounds good. It is good. It's the best good. It's awesome. Not only have you been resurrected from death to life, now you have a hope that is actually a living thing. This is not just some kind of, you know, intellectual hope this is a living hope that is in you and it comes with an inheritance that's what he was talking about back in isaiah remember you said before we were too narrow for the land now the land's too narrow for us the inheritance is coming when israel gives birth to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now that is awesome stuff. However, there are a couple of things in it that temper, you know, the confetti going off a little bit and you know the first one is you know 
there are necessary trials that will grieve us. But even that's not really the one that catches my attention. Why does it talk about this as an inheritance that is a hope and not in hand? Hey, man, I'm all about having hope instead of no hope. But if you're going to give me hope versus something that's in hand, I'll take in hand every time, man. I don't need hope if I've got it. If I'm hoping in something, if I'm hoping in my inheritance, man, I can quit hoping the day I get it. Why does it say that it is kept in heaven for us until we obtain possession? Why does it need to be kept somewhere for me? Why can't I just have it right now, man? I'm that kind of guy. I don't know if you're that kind of guy or not. I I can wake up in the morning and know that some particular thing that I'm going to want later in the day, I can wake up in the morning and not even know that thing exists yet. And when I see it and go, oh man, that's right up my alley. Then I have this epiphany, Damon, that I actually wanted that thing four days ago. Why haven't I got it yet? That doesn't make sense. But that's the thoughts of the heart, not the thoughts of the mind. Man, I need that. Why haven't I had that already? I'm offended someone hasn't told me this existed. So why why does it need to be kept for me? Why, Why can't I just have it? Christ paid the price. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He walked into the temple and made propitiation for my sin. Why can't I just have it? Why does it have to be so hard? And I'm not talking about trivial things. I think this group is above that. I'm not talking about, oh, the neighbor's got a bass boat and I don't have one. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, why is my kid going off the rails and I don't think they're saved? And all I've done is told them the gospel and told them the gospel and told them the gospel. Why why, why is it that that I've made a wreck out of out of the relationship with my spouse. Why is it that my grandkid is sick and nobody seems to have an answer for what's wrong with them? Why is it that I've worked so hard all my life so that I can stop and rest for just a moment? In the moment I think I can stop and rest and enjoy all of the things that I've worked so hard for, it all just blows away. Because you're the until generation. And until she gives birth, desolations are decreed. The war is not over. Which is why when Peter says all of that stuff about the blessed nature of our salvation in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, it's a living hope that you have now, but you will not take possession of it until then. Because in verse 1 he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Friend, when you are born again from life to life from death in Jesus Christ, you are born again in the middle of a war zone 
and in the middle of a war that has been raging since before the foundation of this world and will not come to its conclusion until she who is in labor gives birth. And during that time of war, till the end of it, desolations are decreed. You are the elect exiles. You say, man, I don't know that, 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 that kind of peddling a gospel that makes you an elect exile is that um, palatable to people. Well, you've got a choice. You can be an elect exile or you can be a corpse. You can have a living hope and have various trials that will grieve you for, you know, somewhere around 80, 90 years at the max, probably. You may make it to 120. God said you could make it that far. Haven't seen anybody make it that far yet. And then you can have all eternity with Christ or you can just be a corpse the whole time. And all of this is according to God's good purpose. Listen to what he says. For those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are an elect exile. The trials that you are going through is not apart from the foreknowledge of God, but is according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit in order as Peter will expound upon just down the page, to test you by various trials to bring about sanctification in you that you may be more in obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You were resurrected from the dead, Christian. And if I'm preaching to somebody that's not, if you believe in Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him, you will be resurrected from the dead smack dab in the middle of the war of the ages. Which is exactly why in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul will write and say, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces in heavenly places. And this war is a brutal war. It is a brutal war, as we will see next week when we move into Matthew chapter thirteen, chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. So I'll just ask you this this morning. Why do you desire Christ? Do you desire Christ to improve your circumstance? Do you desire Christ to, to bring about your idea of peace? Man, if you do, you're not alone. As a matter of fact, there's been a whole industry that has been developed around it. About every five to ten years, there's always a blockbuster book that comes out that's built around this concept. Christ is going to bring you your peace. It's going to bring you your idea of what salvation is ought to look like it's taken a lot of forms over the years the last big one was um you know your best life now uh, the biggest one that came before that was in the late 70s and the early 80s with uh, the power of positive thinking it's all the same heretical garbage just retooled and reprinted if you come to christ because you want to improve your circumstance and have him bring you your idea of peace, then you're certainly not the first one that's tried to do that. But I would tell you that these things are contrary to the kingdom of God. 
This is not what the kingdom is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, Paul would write to the church there and say, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And the way that so much of the gospel is presented, well, it's not actually the gospel, but the way that so much of this, hey, Christ will be my peace, he will bring me my peace. It won't be that he is my peace, he will bring me my peace. It's just contrary to what Scripture says it will be. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, records what Jesus runs into when people come to him and want to have him bring them their peace. Basically, they want Jesus to to do for them what they deem to be good so that they may be satisfied and they may be happy they love what christ is saying they love the idea of christ they just don't love the reality of christ and so it says that when jesus saw a crowd around him he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe came up to him and said teacher i will follow you wherever you go and jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and another of the disciples said to him lord let me first go and bury my father and jesus said to him follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead And so, knowing what he says to the second one, there is implication as to what is meant by the first one. And so this this scribe, who is a man of position, he comes up to him and says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And he says, dude, great. I sleep on the ground. I don't have a nice house. doesn't have a street number on it. I don't have a bed with sheets and a pillow and... Even the foxes have holes, and buddy, I'm just out there in it. And this guy, that's not his idea of peace. He wants a peace that's different than that. The next guy comes up to him and says, Lord, let me just first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable thing. Guys, let me tell you, there are reasonable things in this life that a lot of people get to have that as a follower of Christ, you may or may not get to have. And I mean stuff that's not necessarily a bad thing. Certainly burying your father is not a bad thing. But for this guy, it wasn't in the cards. He showed up and said, I want you, but I need, I need to go do my family stuff too. And Jesus said, you're going to have to decide between me and them. What a crazy concept. Does that mean every single person that follows after Christ isn't going to be able to bury their parents? Absolutely not. <laughs> It's not what that means, but it means he may call you to that. It means he may call you to that. It means you may at times have to step up and walk away from things that would otherwise be good, but they're not this good. And yet in man's mind, if you think Christ can bring you your peace instead of being your peace, then all of a sudden Christ just becomes one more piece of the puzzle that is to be juggled and 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 and, and placed and tweaked and leveraged and prioritized. Jesus' peace looks like this. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34 through 39. 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. <laughs> okay. The peace that Christ has is not a peace that is on earth. It's not peace here. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you want Jesus as your peace? Because that's him. He is the tender of the flock. You want to know why it's so hard? It's so hard because this is the way he is tending his flock. This is the way he's tending his flock. He's tended them in ways that were hard before. He tended them through the Babylonian captivity. He tended them through that. He ordained it. He brought them through it. He brought them to the point of hope where the Christ was being brought forth in the flesh in Bethlehem. And he tended them through that. As a matter of fact, right here we're reading in Matthew chapter 10. That's him tending him through that season, through that generation. And when the Christ is cut off and the until generation comes, he tends them through this one too. And it's a tending through the midst of trial, not apart from it. We're going to have to reform our prayer trying to do so myself it's not easy where the knee jerk ceases being Lord take this away from me and instead becomes Lord shepherd me through it shepherd me through it bring me out the other side it's this hard because this is the way that the Lord is tending you Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the until generation, the enemies aren't going to suddenly go away. They're not going to disappear. They're not going to be barred from ever touching you in any way. But he will prepare a table before you in their presence. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You know, when you say, Pastor Brian, when I, when I read that, and I, and I realize these truths, and I, I'm done, guys. When I, when I realize these truths, it makes me go, man, Lord, I wish you would just hurry up and come. I wish Israel would give birth, that it would come out of nowhere, that the prisoners would become kings, that the land that was too wide would become too narrow, and this age of war and desolation would pass away. And I got to tell you, there is a large portion of me, probably the largest portion of me, that agrees with that. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, kind of stuff, you know. But then there's another portion of me that takes pause and go, no, I'm not ready for the war to end yet. You go, man, don't go talking like that, dude. You'll get hit right in the teeth. I know, I know. But let me just, just hold on, though. Let me tell you why. 
I know this hasn't been some crazy barn burner sermon, but there's a large portion of me. It's not the biggest portion, but it's a large portion that doesn't want the war to end yet. Number one, because I know in my heart that if the Lord has not ordained for it to end yet, that me desiring for it to end early is out of line, right? Like, I, I shouldn't want it to end before he wants it to end. Um, they're, they're, he gets to make that call. Like, it, it doesn't matter what topic you're talking about, you know? We lost, uh, you know, a couple years ago, we lost quite a few members of our family right there in a pretty short period of time. I didn't want to lose them. But hindsight being twenty twenty, and knowing now what the ordained, you know, word of God is, I would by, even if he gave me the opportunity, I would not counter that word. I'd be terrified as to what would happen if I did. Like, you, you don't do that. Okay, so that, there's one thing. But that's not the big one. The big one is this. When the war ends, it ends. It's over. It's over. And the conflict ends. And and Satan stops taking casualties and our flesh stops taking casualties. You go, man, isn't that good? Yeah, it'd be good. And the Lord stops taking men captive. What would happen to you, Charlie, if the Lord had ended the war six years ago? Yeah. We got kids that aren't saved yet. Got grandkids and friends. Until just last week, my uncle. Is it hard? You better believe it's hard. Does he require you to do hard things? Things that are just stupid in the eyes of the world? Just to to destroy yourself and nail yourself to a cross? You better believe he does. And out of this comes the glory of God and salvation. And so, man, I long for the day that it's over but only when he says so. Confident that in the meantime, his word will not go out void. And so if you're here today and you're not born again, if you were born to be born again today, that would be awesome because let me tell you, God would get all the glory. No glory going to that sermon. That one's not going to lead him down the aisle. With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible.